This is Medieval Death Trip for Wednesday, March 25th, 2020. Episode 80, concerning Boccaccio's account of the plague. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. And it's good to finally be back after being sidelined for most of the year so far by an upper respiratory infection that led to laryngitis and then a long lingering raspiness and is actually still with me in the form of a persistent dry cough that I just can't quite seem to shake, uh, though I can fortunately edit it out of recordings. So we can proceed. But this is perhaps a fitting way to start off our 2020 episodes as plague and pandemic dominate the headlines. This month, COVID-19, aka SARS-CoV-2, aka the novel coronavirus, was officially declared a global pandemic by the World Health Organization. And so I thought for our text today, we might look at one of the most famous medieval descriptions of a plague, indeed the plague, the opening of Giovanni Boccaccio's Decameron. If we were playing Family Feud, or Family Fortunes, as its UK version was called, uh, if the survey were things associated with the Middle Ages, then Plague has got to be on the board in the top ten. Uh, maybe even the top three. Castles, Knights, Plague. Uh, maybe Dragons would knock Plague down to fourth place. Uh, but my point is that Plague looms large in the popular conception of the Middle Ages. But why? The Bible is full of plagues, and not just of frogs and locusts, but actual epidemic disease. The classical world, with its quasi-urbanized populations, was a hotbed of pestilence. Uh, There's a reason why we have the Greek-derived words epidemic and pandemic in English. And it's not just because we've historically used Greek terms for our medical terminology, though that is part of it. Well, the reason the Middle Ages get tarred with plague is obviously the profound historical inflection point that is the Black Death of 1347 and years following. Uh, Those are, of course, the Eurocentric dates if we think globally, or at least the Northern Hemisphere. The disease caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis emerged out of Central Asia around a decade earlier, though we don't have records surviving to pinpoint anything very precisely until reports from merchants start being noted down in Europe in the mid-1340s. If you think about all the centuries that encompass the Middle Ages, the Black Death is arriving pretty late to the game to be a defining event of the period. It's almost a Renaissance pandemic. And indeed, for the actual study of bubonic plague, most of the medical history of the disease lies in its later recurrences, which afflict the cities of the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. The Great Plague of London is 1665. Um, The now rather cliched image of the bird-masked plague doctor, which appears in a lot of pop culture depictions of the Black Death, is a 17th century outfit and is completely anachronistic when dropped into the Middle Ages. Like those beaked doctors, bubonic plague is, historically speaking, more a hallmark of the early modern period. But given the biology of immunity and other epidemiological factors, those later eruptions of bubonic plague do feel like simply echoes of its dramatic debut on the European stage in 1347. The Black Death overshadows them all. 
It also overshadows the 6th century plague of Justinian, which had a similar death toll and which recent genomic work has proven to have also been caused by Yersinia pestis, uh, and thus was the actual debut of the disease in Europe. Unless you accept the evidence out there that suggests why pestis also may have had a Neolithic outbreak that impacted Europe all the way up into Scandinavia. But the Black Death of 1347 won't have its thunder stolen, and it is a product of its period. Its pandemicality was fueled by the more cosmopolitan conditions and rapidly advancing technology of the late Middle Ages. It's the robust and rapid maritime trade network that spreads it around the Mediterranean and up into the Baltic and across the English Channel in the span of just about a year, something you see much less often in earlier plagues, which tend to remain regional, epidemic rather than pandemic. The Black Death is also immortalized in art, which builds up its cultural footprint, um, and it's given a name, Pestilentia Magna, the Great Pestilence. Not a terribly imaginative name, but like the Great War, it captures the remarkable scale of the thing. The label Black Death, by the way, is a modern coinage. Uh, it's sometimes justified by references to isolated examples of the phrase in various European languages in the late Middle Ages, but there's no evidence that this was a name in any kind of popular circulation at the time. The Great Pestilence stands out from the innumerable other pestilentia that populate our medieval chronicles and classical histories. Like the Great War, that is partly due to how widespread it was, how many countries it involved, but it's also because of a factor conveyed by the other common name for it used by medieval writers, the Great Mortality. The mortality rate of COVID-19 is, presently, here in March 2020, still an evolving figure. The current estimate from global data is hovering around 3% for cases in the general population and running considerably higher in older age ranges. We should define our terms here, though, because I've noticed in popular discussions that there's a lot of confusion about this. So that 3% is specifically a case fatality ratio. That is, it's the number of confirmed cases, though this can sometimes include strongly suspected cases as well, depending on who's doing the measuring and the quality of the data. But you take confirmed cases that ended in death and divide that by the total number of confirmed cases, multiply by 100, and you get a percentage. That's the case fatality ratio. So, yes, as a number of people who want to downplay the dangers of COVID-19 assert, this figure does not reflect all the people who have mild cases and never get tested. If you include all those people, the figure would go down considerably. That much is probably true. However, it then gets argued that this makes COVID-19's quote-unquote real mortality rate no different from the common flu. That ignores that the 0.1% rate for the common flu, as calculated by the CDC, is also a case fatality rate and does not try to guesstimate all the mild, unreported cases of flu. So that 0.1% flu rate would also go down considerably if you could somehow measure all the unreported cases which you can't really do since you can't measure something that's defined as uncollected data. So anyway, that's the flaw in this comparison. A modified mortality rate for COVID-19 is being held up to an unmodified rate for seasonal influenza, and that does not make a sound comparison. Anyway, a rate of 3% is high enough to generate serious alarm, and indeed, as we're seeing, a degree of panic, as evidenced by the mixture of both 
rational and irrational hoarding that's leaving store shelves barren all over the place. It's causing major disruption of daily life, both voluntarily taken on as a precaution and imposed by governments and institutions. The economic impact is still unfolding and may well continue to unfold over the next couple of years. Several nations are right now approaching a tipping point for the capacity of their healthcare systems. This is how modern society looks facing a disease with a 3% case fatality rate. Ebola hemorrhagic fever, the other relatively new epidemic disease that's become a household name uh, since HIV, Ebola has a mortality rate for those who receive medical treatment of around 50%, and it's closer to 90% if it's left untreated. That's considerably scarier, and that's why Ebola has become Western pop culture's epitome of an apocalyptic pandemic. Actually, though, the forms of Ebola that we've seen so far are comparatively hard to catch. Ebola primarily spreads through quite close and intimate contact, primarily to those directly caring for or treating an infected person, or cleaning up vomit or other bodily fluids, or handling the corpse of an infected person. That's why its epidemics center in places where hospital sanitation is not necessarily great, where hospital beds are in short supply so that infected people are cared for in the home, and where there are traditional customs around the washing and preparation of the dead by family members that contribute to viral exposure, though this latter point was more a factor in early rural Ebola outbreaks and has been mitigated by better education and public awareness in recent years. Ebola also tends to sicken people quite quickly and dramatically, which narrows the window of communicability quite a bit. You don't have a lot of time to travel around with an Ebola infection before it pretty well incapacitates you. As such, it will burn through a close community or hospital quite intensely, but usually does not radiate far from that center very much, and is again comparatively easy to contain. The devastating 2013-2016 West African outbreak was one exception to the typical pattern. Nonetheless, despite its frightening mortality rate, Ebola has never really posed that much of a threat to the developed world, barring some mutation into an airborne form with a longer incubation period. Those two qualities are, of course, traits possessed by COVID-19 that make it more legitimately alarming and justify the extreme global response to it, um, even though at the level of the individual patient, it is far less deadly than Ebola. At the pandemic level... It is a different beast entirely. In Hollywood and the popular imagination, Ebola's mighty 50% spawns visions of a pandemic apocalypse and civilization-rending panic. The Great Mortality only had a European average rate of 30%, and that figure flattens out wide geographic variations in the rate. Some regions and cities in particular had rates of 50-60%, to and the average is lowered by rural areas, which may have only experienced a 10% rate. Also, as with most medieval statistics, this is based on a best-guess interpretation of the population data from the records and evidence that we have. Oh, but wait, how do you measure confirmed cases of plague from over 600 years ago? You don't. That 30% is a different kind of mortality rate. That's the percentage of the whole European population that died in the Black Death. It's not just the percentage of infected people who died. For comparison, the West African Ebola outbreak resulted in 28,000 documented cases with 11,000 deaths in a population base of approximately 24 million people. Um, That would be the populations of the three most seriously affected countries. 
that's a 0.044% of the population dying from Ebola in that pandemic. You could draw the boundaries around the outbreak areas more narrowly and make it a smaller total population, but to get anywhere close to 30%, you'd have to draw those boundaries around a village or a hospital. In the 1340s, Europe is estimated to have had a population of around 80 million, and the conservative estimate for deaths during the Black Plague is 25 million. The case mortality rate, so the percentage of infected people who died, was probably upwards of 70%. With modern medical treatment, Yersinia pestis kills only 10% of cases, which is a great improvement over medieval figures, but is high enough that you definitely don't want to catch it from a prairie dog when you're in the American Southwest, where it has an animal reservoir population today. And at last, let's turn to our text. As I said, Compared to previous epidemics, which were noted by historians and lamented in contemporary records, but generally just taken as one of the things that happens, like a crop failure or a flood or a devastating fire, uh, they aren't ordinary events, but they aren't particularly surprising either. Uh, In contrast to those, the Great Pestilence was surprising in its magnitude. Even though we know it was precedented by earlier epidemics, it felt unprecedented to those who lived through it. And so it was memorialized in ways that those earlier epidemics were not. That said, I'd have to say it leaves its greatest impression in visual art, of which there is a great deal from paintings to tomb sculptures. In literature, well, there are some vivid descriptions in chronicles and medical treatises. But for as enormous an event as the Great Pestilence was, you don't find many extensive descriptions of it in literary art. Most of the time it appears as a passing reference. Chaucer mentions it as part of the resume of the allegorical figure of death who appears in the partner's tale, but doesn't go into any detail beyond emphasizing the sheer numbers of the dead and the indiscriminacy of the deaths. Um, It also shows up in Piers Plowman in a similar kind of aside. Is this lack of deeper engagement due to trauma? Is it just a lingering reflection of the older medieval prejudice that viewed contemporary events as unworthy of artistic treatment? Maybe it's a bit of both, Um, but fortunately for us, one Florentine writer did decide to use the plague as a key element of the setting of a new work, a collection of tales in the vernacular Italian of Tuscany. This is Giovanni Boccaccio, and the work is the Decameron. I trust that the Decameron and Boccaccio are famous enough to not require much more introduction. It's a tale collection framed as a storytelling game among some young men and women of Florence who, as we're about to hear, leave the city for the countryside to wait out the plague. It's a direct inspiration for Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, though unlike Chaucer, Boccaccio actually finished the full cycle of tales he set up, 100 in all, hence the title. It's thought that Boccaccio probably completed the Decameron in 1351, So not years and years after the plague, looking back on a past tragedy with the safety and distance of retrospection, but rather while Florence is still experiencing the immediate aftermath of the plague. Though, as we'll hear, Boccaccio tries to assert that life has largely returned to normal as he's writing. The description he gives of the plague in the Decameron is often considered to be that of an eyewitness, This has actually become a point of some debate among Boccaccio scholars. There's evidence that he was actually in Naples in 1348 and not in Florence, and so his account may be coming secondhand from his friends and family who were in Florence. 
But there have also been counter arguments to this assertion in recent years, and I honestly don't know what the current consensus opinion is on whether Boccaccio witnessed the plague in Florence firsthand or not. But even if he didn't, he still witnessed the plague, be it in Naples or elsewhere in Italy. So while he gives us a literary representation of the plague, I think we can trust that it has significant value as a historical account as well. And concerning that historical value, a particularly value for medical history, I came across a letter published in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases from 2009, uh, and you can get full bibliographic references on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. The authors of this letter point out that the old story we've probably all heard about the plague being spread from rats to humans via flea bites, uh, this story is maybe a smaller part of the overall picture than we thought, because more recent science has proven that plague can also be transmitted by the human body louse. A number of plague accounts, including the one you're about to hear, mention how people who took clothing off of sick people became sick themselves. Now, fleas can be carried along in clothing too, but not half as readily as lice. So, as you listen to Boccaccio describing how it seems the disease spreads, think not just of rats in the rafters and fleas jumping from one host to another, but also about the lice that are living in the bedding and the clothing and the hair and everything else. Suddenly, the vectors for the plague seem omnipresent. So, without any further prelude... Let's hear how Boccaccio begins his Decameron, as translated by Leopold Fleming. It opens with an address to his prospective readers. To the ladies. When I reflect how disposed you are by nature to compassion, I cannot help being apprehensive, lest what I now offer to your acceptance should seem to have but a harsh and offensive beginning. For it presents at the very outset the mournful experience of that most fatal plague, so terrible yet in the memories of us all. But let this not dismay you from reading further, as though every page were to cost you sighs and tears. Rather, let this beginning, disagreeable as it is, seem to you but as a rugged and steep mountain placed before a delightful valley, which appears more beautiful and pleasant as the way to it was more difficult. For as joy usually ends in sorrow, so again the end of sorrow is joy. To this short fatigue, I call it short because contained in few words, immediately succeeds the mirth and pleasure I had before promised you, and which, but for that promise, you would scarcely expect to find. And in truth, could I have brought you by any other way than this, I gladly would have done it. But, as the occasion of the occurrences of which I am going to treat could not be well made out without such a relation, I am forced to use this introduction." Of our Lord, 1348, 
there happened at Florence, the finest city in all Italy, a most terrible plague, which, whether owing to the influence of the planets or that it was sent from God as a just punishment for our sins, had broken out some years before in the Levant, and after passing from place to place and making incredible havoc all the way, had now reached the West. There, in spite of all the means that art and human foresight could suggest, such as keeping the city clear from filth, the exclusion of all suspected persons, and the publication of copious instructions for the preservation of health, and notwithstanding manifold humble supplications offered to God in processions and otherwise, it began to show itself in the spring of the aforesaid year, in a sad and wonderful manner. Unlike what had been seen in the past, where bleeding from the nose is the fatal prognostic, here there appeared certain tumors in the groin or under the armpits, some as big as a small apple, others as an egg, and afterwards purple spots in most parts of the body, in some cases large and but few in number, in others smaller and more numerous, both sorts the usual messengers of death. To the cure of this malady, neither medical knowledge nor the power of drugs was of any effect, whether because the disease was in its own nature mortal, or that the physicians, the number of whom taking quacks and women pretenders into the account was grown very great, could form no just idea of the cause nor consequently devise a true method of cure. Whichever was the reason, few escaped, but nearly all died the third day from the first appearance of the symptoms, some sooner, some later without any fever or other accessory symptoms. What gave the more virulence to this plague was that, by being communicated from the sick to the hail, it spread daily, like fire when it comes in contact with large masses of combustibles. Nor was it caught only by conversing with or coming near the sick, but even by touching their clothes or anything that they had before touched. It is wonderful what I'm going to mention, and had I not seen it with my own eyes, and there were not many witnesses to attest to it besides myself, I should never venture to relate it, however worthy it were of belief. Such, I say, was the quality of the pestilential matter, as to pass not only from man to man, but, what is more strange, it has been often known that anything belonging to the infected, if touched by any other creature, would certainly infect and even kill that creature in a short space of time. One instance of this kind I took particular notice of. The rags of a poor man, just dead, had been thrown into the street. Two hogs came up, and after rooting amongst the rags and shaking them about in their mouths, in less than an hour, they both turned round and died on the spot. These facts, and others of the like sort, occasioned various fears and devices amongst those who survived, all tending to the same uncharitable and cruel end, which was to avoid the sick and everything that had been near them, expecting by that means to save themselves. And some, holding it best to live temperately and to avoid excesses of all kinds, made parties and shut themselves up from the rest of the world, eating and drinking moderately of the best and diverting themselves with music and other such entertainments as they might have within doors, never listening to anything from without to make them uneasy. Others maintained free living to be a better preservative, and would balk no passion or appetite they wished to gratify, drinking and reveling incessantly from tavern to tavern, or in private houses, which were frequently found deserted by the owners, and therefore common to everyone, yet strenuously avoiding, with all this brutal indulgence, to come near the infected. 
and such at that time was the public distress that the laws, human and divine, were no more regarded. For the officers to put them in force, being either dead, sick, or in want of persons to assist them, everyone did just as he pleased. A third sort of people chose a method between these two, not confining themselves to rules of diet like the former, and yet avoiding the intemperance of the latter, but eating and drinking whatever their appetites required, they walked everywhere with odors and nosegays to smell to, as holding it best to corroborate the brain, for the whole atmosphere seemed to them tainted with the stench of dead bodies. Arising partly from the distemper itself, and partly from the fermenting of the medicines within them. Others with less humanity, but perchance as they supposed with more security from danger, decided that the only remedy for the pestilence was to avoid it. Persuaded therefore of this and taking care for themselves only, men and women in great numbers left the city, their houses, relations, and effects, and fled into the country, as if the wrath of God had been restrained to visit those only within the walls of the city or else concluding that none ought to stay in a place thus doomed to destruction. Thus divided as they were in their views, neither did all die nor all escape, but falling sick indifferently, as well those of one as of another opinion. They who first set the example by forsaking others, now languished themselves without pity. I pass over the little regard that citizens and relations showed to each other, for their terror was such that a brother even fled from his brother, a wife from her husband, and, what is more uncommon, a parent from his own child. Hence, numbers that fell sick could have no help but that which the charity of friends, who were very few, or the avarice of servants supplied, and even these were scarce and at extravagant wages, and so little used to the business that they were fit only to reach what was called for and observe when their employer died and this desire of getting money often cost them their lives. From this desertion of friends and scarcity of servants, an unheard-of custom prevailed. No lady, however young or handsome, would shrink from being attended by a male servant, whether young or old it mattered not, and to expose herself naked to him as though it were to a woman, the necessity of the distemper requiring it, a practice which might make those who recovered less modest in the future and many lost their lives who might have escaped had they been looked after at all, so that, between the scarcity of servants and the violence of the distemper, such numbers were continually dying as made it terrible to hear as well as to behold. Whence, from mere necessity, many customs were introduced different from what had been before known in the city. It had been usual, as it now is, for the women who were friends and neighbors to the deceased to meet together at his house and to lament with his relations, at the same time, the men would get together at the door with a number of clergy according to the person's circumstances, and the corpse was carried by people of his own rank with the solemnity of tapers and singing to that church where the deceased had desired to be buried. This custom was now laid aside, and so far from having a crowd of women to lament over them, great numbers passed out of the world without a witness. Few were they who had the tears of their friends at their departure those friends were laughing and making themselves merry the while, for even the women had learned to postpone every other concern to that of their own lives. Nor was a corpse attended by more than ten or a dozen, nor those citizens of credit, but fellows hired for the purpose, who would put themselves under the bier and carry it with all possible haste to the nearest church, 
and the corpse was interred without any great ceremony where they could find room. With regard to the lower sort and many of the middling rank, the scene was still more affecting, for they staying at home either through poverty or hopes of succor in distress, fell sick daily by thousands, and having nobody to attend them, generally died. Some breathed their last in the streets, and others shut up in their own houses, where the stench that came from them made the first discovery of their deaths to the neighborhood. And indeed, every place was filled with the dead. Hence it became a general practice, as well out of regard for the living as pity for the dead, for the neighbors, assisted by what porters they could meet with, to clear all the houses, and lay the bodies at the doors, and every morning great numbers might be seen brought out in this manner, to be carried away on beers or tables, two or three at a time. And sometimes it has happened that a wife and her husband, two or three brothers, and a father and son have been laid on together. It has been observed also, whilst two or three priests have walked before a corpse with their crucifix, that two or three sets of porters have fallen in with them, and where they knew of but one dead body, they have buried six, eight, or more. Nor was there any to follow and shed a few tears over them, for things were come to that pass, that men's lives were no more regarded than the lives of so many beasts. Thus it plainly appeared that what the wisest in the ordinary course of things and by a common train of calamities could never be taught, namely to bear them patiently, this, by the excess of calamity, was now grown a familiar lesson to the most simple and unthinking. The consecrated ground no longer containing the numbers which were continually brought thither, especially as they were desirous of laying every one in the parts allotted to their families, they were forced to dig trenches and to put them in by hundreds, piling them up in rows as goods are stored in a ship, and throwing in a little earth till they were filled to the top. Not to dwell upon every particular of our misery, I shall observe that it fared no better with the adjacent country, for, to omit the different boroughs about us, which presented the same view in miniature with the city, you might see the poor distressed laborers with their families, without either the aid of physicians or help of servants, languishing on the highways, in the fields, and in their own houses, and dying rather like cattle than human creatures. The consequence was that, growing dissolute in their manners like the citizens, and careless of everything, as supposing every day to be their last, their thoughts were not so much employed on how to improve as how to use their substance for their present support. The oxen, asses, sheep, goats, swine, and the dogs themselves, ever faithful to their masters, being driven from their own homes, were left to roam at will about the fields and among the standing corn, which no one cared to gather or even to reap. And many times after they had filled themselves in the day, the animals would return of their own accord, like rational creatures at night. What can I say more if I return to the city? Unless that such was the cruelty of heaven, and perhaps of men, that between March and July following, according to authentic reckonings, upwards of a hundred thousand souls perished in the city only, whereas before that calamity it was not supposed to have contained so many inhabitants. What magnificent dwellings, what noble palaces were then depopulated to the last inhabitant? What families became extinct? What riches and vast possessions were left and no known heir to inherit them? 
what numbers of both sexes in the prime and vigor of youth, whom in the morning neither Galen, Hippocrates, nor Asclepius himself would have denied to be in perfect health, breakfasted in the morning with their living friends, and supped at night with their departed friends in the other world. I am weary of recounting our late miseries. Therefore, passing by everything that I can well omit, I proceed to say that the city being left almost without inhabitants, it happened one Tuesday morning, as I was informed by persons of good credit, that seven ladies, all in deep mourning, as most proper for that time, had been attending divine service in the church of Santa Maria Novella, where they formed the whole congregation. The youngest of these ladies was in age not less than eighteen, the eldest did not exceed twenty-eight. They were all relations or near friends, all discreet, nobly descended, and perfectly accomplished, both in person and behavior. I do not mention their names, lest any of them should be put to the blush by something here and after related of them, for the limits of allowed disport are much narrower in our day than they were in those times, when, for the reasons already mentioned, they were very ample indeed, not only for persons of their age, but for those of much maturer years. Neither would I give a handle to ill-natured persons who carp at everything that is praiseworthy to detract in any way from the modesty of these worshipful ladies by injurious reflections. But that I may relate all that occurred without confusion, I shall affix names to every one, bearing some resemblance to the quality of that person. The eldest, then, I call Pompanea, the next to her, Fiametta, the third, Philomena, the fourth, Emilia, the fifth, Loretta, the sixth, Neophile, and the youngest, Eliza. These seven being got together by chance rather than any appointment into the corner of the church and there seated in a ring, after a while left off sighing and saying their paternosters, and began to converse concerning the nature of the times. This continued for some time, and presently Pompanea thus began. My dear girls, you have often heard, as well as I, that we do no wrong to anyone when we only make an honest use of our own reason. Now, reason tells us that we are to preserve our lives by all possible means, and in some cases at the expense of the lives of others. If then the laws, which regard the good of the community, allow this, may we not much rather, and all that mean honestly as we do, without giving offense to any, use the means now in our power for our own preservation? Every moment when I think of what has passed today and every day, I perceive, as you may also, that we are all in pain for ourselves. Nor do I wonder at this, but much rather, as we are women, do I wonder that none of us should look out for a remedy when we have so much reason to be afraid. We stay here for no other purpose that I can see but to observe what numbers come to be buried, or to listen if the monks, who are now reduced to a very few, sing their services at the proper times, or else to show by our habits the greatness of our distress." And if we go hence, it is either to see multitudes of the dead and sick carried along the streets, or persons who had been outlawed for their villainies now facing it out publicly in safe defiance of the law, or the scum of the city enriched with the public calamity and insulting us with ribald ballads. Nor is anything now talked of but that such a one is dead or dying, and were any left to mourn, we should hear nothing but lamentations." 
Or, if we go home, I know not whether it fares with you as with myself, when I find, out of a numerous family, not one left besides a maidservant, I am frightened out of my senses, and go where I will, the ghosts of the departed seem always before me, not like the persons whilst they were living, but assuming a ghastly and dreadful aspect. Therefore, the case is the same, whether we stay here, depart hence, or go home, especially as there are few left but ourselves who are able to go and have a place to go to. Those few too, I am told, fall into all sorts of debauchery, and even cloistered ladies, supposing themselves entitled to equal liberties with others, are as bad as the worst. Now, if this be so, as you see plainly it is, what do we hear? What are we dreaming of? Why are we less regardful of our lives than other people of theirs? Are we of less value to ourselves, or are our souls and bodies more firmly united and so in less danger of dissolution? Is it monstrous to think in such a manner? So many of both sexes dying of this distemper in the very prime of their youth afford us an undeniable argument to the contrary. Wherefore, lest through our own willfulness or neglect this calamity which might have been prevented should befall us, I should think it best, and I hope you will join with me, for us to quit the town, and avoiding as we would death itself the bad example of others, to choose some place of retirement, of which every one of us has more than one, where we may make ourselves innocently merry without offering the least violence to the dictates of reason and our own consciences." There will our ears be entertained with the warbling of the birds, and our eyes with the verdure of the hills and valleys, with the waving of cornfields like the sea itself, with trees of a thousand different kinds, and a more open and serene sky, which, however overcast, yet affords a more agreeable prospect than these desolate walls. The air is also pleasanter, and there is greater plenty of everything, attended with few inconveniences, for... Though people die there as well as here, yet we shall have fewer such objects before us, as the inhabitants are less in number. And on the other part, if I judge right, we desert nobody, but are rather ourselves forsaken. For all our friends, either by death or endeavoring to avoid it, have left us, as if we in no way belong to them. As no blame then can ensue from following this advice, and perhaps sickness and death from not doing so, I would have us take our maids and everything we may be supposed to want, and enjoy all the diversions which the season will permit, today in one place, tomorrow in another, and so continue to do, unless death should interpose, until we see what end providence designs for these things. And of this too let me remind you, that our characters will stand as fair by our going away reputably, as those of others will do who stay at home with discredit. So, Pompeia and her friends meet up with three young gentlemen, retire to a countryside villa, and engage in a tale-telling game that largely leaves the plague behind and moves us into a world of comedic fablio and tragic melodramas, among other things. 
In an article on the Decameron from 2005, Martin Marafiati argues that Boccaccio's work actually influenced the medical community, who, in treatises written after the Decameron, start recommending literary pleasure, reading or storytelling, as a way to avoid getting the plague, what Marafiati calls literary prophylaxis, which is a great term. Add that to your vocabulary. The physicians also encouraged performing or listening to music and playing games. The logic was that improving morale, so to speak, strengthened body and mind and thus protected against coming down with the disease. Marafiati quotes uh, some of these tracks, and I thought I'd give you a taste of a few of them. Here's a bit from one from the mid to late 14th century by Tommaso del Garbo. He writes, quote, Use songs and games and other pleasant novella, that is, novelties or stories, that do not exhaust the body and all those delightful things that bring comfort. End quote. The term novella there for the type of tales Boccaccio presents in the Decameron, uh, that's where the novel as a form ultimately gets its name in English. Here's another physician, Castore Durante, writing a bit later in 1586. Quote, a man who wishes to be healthy should stroll through gardens, contemplate the greenery and peaceful atmosphere, and converse with jovial and eloquent friends, with music and songs, because with these things virtue is restored. And since virtue and strength increase with food, wine, and pleasant odors, with peace and happiness, and by leaving behind things that depress, and by conversing with friends, it is therefore worthwhile to listen to agreeable stories, fables, and pleasant discussions, with music and songs, and with entertaining lessons. However, reading should not be done with the head in a low position, but elevated, and with green-tinted spectacles to strengthen the eyesight. End quote. In some respects, this idea of keeping the spirits up sounds like relatively modern advice. The power of a positive attitude and stress reduction are generally accepted as having an actual role in getting through an illness and in recovery. But we might note a difference. The medieval physician's claim is that staying happy will prevent you from getting sick. That's a somewhat sketchier proposition, empirically speaking. That's starting to touch on magical thinking. Now, true, stress can weaken the immune system, and stress reduction, well, it doesn't exactly strengthen the immune system, but it does make it less weak, as it were, uh, keeps it closer to normal. Uh, so there is some validity to this proposition. However, when you also take into account that some of these same physicians are also claiming that simply talking about the plague can conjure it and make you sick, uh, that infection can be transmitted by thoughts and language, that the plague is viral, but viral like a meme rather than a virus or a germ. Um, Yersinia pestis being, of course, a bacterium and not a virus. Uh, not that anyone in the 14th or 15th centuries had any notion of those concepts. Anyway, when you put this advice within the ideological framework of disease that the Middle Ages had, then you can see that whatever genuinely beneficial effects it may have had, it came by them more or less by accident, because the reasoning behind it is pure fantasy. Our mystery word this episode is ermt. Y-R-M-T. Ermt. Barely even looks like a word. If you Google it, it shows up in use as a few different acronyms, or perhaps initialisms. Uh, it could be, you'll remember me tomorrow, or a reincarnation-focused rejoinder to YOLO, uh, you'll relive many times. But, in Old Norse, ermt is an adjective meaning 
appropriately for today's reading, swarming with vermin, like the lousy clothing of the plague victims, in the literal sense of lousy. I can't find expert linguistic confirmation on this, but it seems pretty obvious to me that ermt is derived from ormer, meaning serpent or worm, and its related adjectives, so it basically means wormy. Ormer and worm and vermin all trace back to the same Proto-Indo-European root, which had a sense of to turn or bend. So you can get how that gets applied to tubular, legless animals, serpents, earthworms, uh, things which weren't always categorically distinct from each other in ancient and medieval natural history. These are bendy, wiggly, wriggly creatures. That same root lies behind all of the Latin verso derivatives we have, like reverse and invert and vortex, uh, all words that involve turning. And through the Germanic branch, that same root ultimately produces the English words wrangle and wrestle and wriggle and other sorts of squirmy WR verbs. Also, wreathe and wrap, which involve twisting or bending, folding around something else. So the next time you hang up your Christmas wreath, you can think about how it's a cousin to the humble worm. In a bit of old business, I'd like to correct an error from episode 78 that was pointed out to me by a listener, Sporting Mick, or maybe Sporting Mike, on Twitter. Throughout that episode, I referred to the reigns of William Rufus and Henry I as examples of Angevin kingship. Uh, the first two Williams and Henry are, of course, Norman kings. The Angevin dynasty doesn't start until Henry II, Count of Anjou, becomes King of England after the tumult of Stephen's reign. Angevin being the Latinate adjective of Anjou, which I will confess to not having put that particular two and two together until it was pointed out to me. Uh, my very weak defense is that two different historians I was relying on treated the Normans and Angevins together. Uh, one of these, J.E.A. Joliffe's book, Angevin Kingship, presents the monarchy under Henry II and Richard and John as a fairly direct extension of principles and royal personality established by the Sons of the Conqueror. Uh, so in my mental lexicon, the adjective broke its boundaries and began to describe more kings than it ought to have. Um, so thank you once more for helping me not make that particular mistake again in the future. We've had a lot of new listeners picking up the show since the last time I mentioned it, so I thought I'd also just briefly revisit the title of the show. It is an odd title, uh, and maybe it's not even the best title for branding purposes, um, but here's what it is. It's an homage to one of my favorite works of historical research, Michael Lessie's Wisconsin Death Trip, uh, which was also adapted into a feature-length documentary, which is also good, but only scratches the surface of the content of the book. Wisconsin Death Trip is essentially an album of clippings from newspapers and other primary sources from Black River Falls, Wisconsin, during the 1890s, focusing on reports of the strange, the extreme, the traumatic, uh, general signs of anxiety and irrationality and trauma in that period. It's a fascinating book, and I highly recommend it. Uh, I honestly don't exactly know what a death trip is, uh, I've always taken it as a kind of counterculture, slangy description of Lessie's proposed exploration of the morbid and bizarre. The book was commercially published in 1973, and that's after having been his doctoral dissertation, um, and it's quite a radical format for a dissertation, so I've attributed it to this kind of hippie counterculture spirit. Uh, I don't know how accurate that is, um, but that's where our title does come from. 
And I'll add to that that I think Wisconsin Death Trip, uh, the book, could be very interesting reading for anyone self-quarantining. Um, it also shows people engaging with a world that feels like it's always on the cusp of disaster, be it personal or regional or national disaster. People are setting themselves on fire. They're spotting lake monsters. Epidemic disease is burning through the community every few years. Armies of tramps are moving across the countryside. Banks are failing. I think it's something we can relate to, uh, but also get a different sense of perspective from. And though I haven't thought about this very much until right this moment, uh, it also offers a potentially very productive comparison between how the news media covered disaster and tragedy then and now. I bet there's a good article in that for someone. Uh, maybe I'll even take a stab at it. Who knows? I only have an audiobook to finish recording and editing first. Speaking of, I'd also like to thank my new Patreon supporters from Since Christmas. Uh, I'm especially thankful to those of you who became patrons even during this long intermission. So thank you very much to Colin D., Blythe, Colin F., David, Emmeline, Molly, Ingvar, Ray, Elaine, Levi, and Pete. Your support and the support of all my patrons really do help make this show possible and make it better, uh, at least when I'm capable of recording. So far, no one's been able to buy me new sinus cavities, um, but maybe that's the stretch goal for the future. If you would like to become a patron of the show and get access to some bonus content and one full audiobook and another that is forthcoming, uh, just bear with me. You can do so at patreon.com. Just go there and search for Medieval Death Trip, or go directly to patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. Uh, that last bit is also our Twitter handle, at mdtpodcast. If you have any corrections or questions, that's the best place to pose them. Uh, that said, if you have longer queries, you can also reach me by email to patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. And that last bit is our website, medievaldeathtrip.com, where you can find more information about this and every episode, including references for the texts and articles. Well, I'm working on another little set of plague texts for our next episode, uh, which I don't plan on keeping you waiting a couple of months for. Until then, don't trade clothes with anyone uh, for the time being. Keep your hands clean, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>